thank you for joining us for another Carlton Fields podcast. Today, we're going to hear from Miami appellate attorney David Karp and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Gilbert King. Gilbert King is the author of Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and Dawn of a New America. David is a former journalist and recently wrote an amicus brief for Gilbert and the First Amendment Foundation on the importance of access to historically significant grand jury records. In this podcast, David and Gilbert discuss the need for truth and transparency in the judicial process. Hello, uh, my name is David Karp. I'm an appellate lawyer at Carlton Fields in our Miami office, and I'm joined today for a conversation with Gilbert King. Um, Gilbert is an author of three books, Beneath a Ruthless Sun, which came out in 2018, Devil in the Grove, Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of the New America, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2013, and The Execution of Willie Francis, which was published in 2008. He's also written in many publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. So we'll th- we're thrilled to have Gilbert here today for a conversation about a case that we worked on together called Pitch versus United States of America. And the Pitch case is pending in front of the full 11th Circuit on Bonk right now, and it's a case about Uh, the federal court's inherent authority to release federal grand jury records of exceptional historic importance. And I'm going to turn it over a little bit to Gilbert to tell us a little bit about what this case is about and what the um, historical um, event that's at issue in in the case is about. Yeah, thanks, David. It's great to great to join you. And um, yeah, I was really following this case. I was very interested in it because it definitely touches on something that that I've had to deal with over the years when I file a Freedom of Information Act request, or I've always wanted to get my hands on grand jury testimony because I recognize that it's it's sort of important to getting to the bottom of some of these you know murders and lynchings. And um, so as a historian, as someone who studies this, you sometimes get a little frustrated because you know that the investigations and, and the grand jury um, procedures, that many of the answers are in that courtroom and in those transcripts. And as a researcher, it kind of drives you crazy to not be able to get your hands on them. And, and this was a really important case back in 1946, the Morris-Ford lynching. It was like, I believe it was the last mass lynching in America and, um, it, you know, it was basically unsolved. And so, like, Anthony Pitch, I know, like, Laura Wexler had written a book called Fire in the Canebrake, and it was about this case. And um, I just think it's really important to be able to to seek justice and, and get to the bottom of this. And, and accessing those grand jury uh, transcripts would be just a major boon, not only to researchers, but for justice in this country. Sure. And um, just a little bit of background on this lynching. It it took place in rural Georgia in 1946. And it took place um, at a time in Georgia when the Democratic uh, Party primary was closed to black voters. 
and there was a very contentious and racially charged governor's race in which for the first time some black voters were exercising or trying to exercise their right to vote and uh, four people two couples um, were lynched in uh, near uh, Moore's Ford which is a river in this in this uh, rural county Walton County Georgia uh, pretty much in broad daylight um, there's various accounts to how many people witnessed the lynching. Um, there were certainly people who saw it and saw the perpetrators. And some accounts say that there were scores of people who saw this, this quadruple murder. Um, and the murder got some national attention. The president at the time, Harry Truman, ordered a FBI investigation and um, ultimately, a federal grand jury was impaneled and heard from numerous witnesses in the town. And after several weeks of taking testimony, the grand jury adjourned and didn't charge anyone with these murders. Um, and the murders have gone unsolved for the last for the last seventy years. Right, and um, you know this was this is a really um, important case. Um, I think in, in terms of American history, you talked about um, Harry Truman. He started that civil rights um, to secure these rights, which was written right around 1946. And I think it was pretty appalling to a lot of people who read that report, um, like the amount of violence that was happening in the Jim Crow South and these kind of cases and how they basically were never solved. It was always, you know, at the hands of unknown persons and, you know, the FBI couldn't get a lot of white people to speak out. They certainly couldn't get a lot of African-Americans to speak out at the time because African-Americans at this time in history, they were terrified that by speaking to white FBI agents, the white FBI agents would go straight to the police or the sheriff's department and tell them exactly who knew what. And the next thing you know, you'd have another lynching on your hand or at least someone being chased out of town and told never to come back. And so African-Americans were just terrified about speaking to authorities about this. And white people certainly weren't speaking out about it. And so in, in a lot of these lynchings um, in the 20th century in the United States, they just remained unsolved. You could never get a grand jury to even indict anybody. Um, so it was a real problem in the country. And you haven't written about this particular lynching, but were there um, themes or um, sort of historically significant events in this lynching that you've seen in the work you've done on your three books? Well, this this case was particularly violent because it involved, you know, more than one person being lynched. I mean, there's two couples. Um, so this mass lynching aspect of it, you know, this late, you know, after World War II, I think was just extraordinary. It's, it really stood out in, in American history. And and the fact that these kind of cases would just go unsolved, um, I think it's just a major blot on, on the credibility of the, the criminal justice system in the United States. But this was really indicative of, of, of what was happening in the Jim Crow South constantly. So many of these cases were just never solved. Or if they were, you know, sometimes they would actually get indictments and, and in the rare cases they would go to trial. You would never be able to get a jury of basically 12 white men to convict. Uh, and so that's, th those are the kind of cases that I run into a lot. The, even the ones that make it to a trial, which was really against all odds, 
um, the, the cases would become so important to protect white supremacy that that they could never get any convictions on these. Uh, and, and that was just the rule, the rule of the day in the Jim Crow South. I mean, I've written about, you know, several of these kind of lynchings and, oh, they all seem to be very dissatisfying and, and like, almost as if like the government knows who did it, but they just can't get a conviction. And, and, and that's, that's the big problem with, with these kind of post-war lynchings. As a writer and a historian, how do you go about researching these cases, especially when um, they happened so long ago and people have died, and when there might be an urge to, to keep it quiet and to not relive something that's pretty ugly in the past? How do you deal with that? Right. Well, I mean, the major thing that I look for when I start writing about these cases, I want to know what kind of primary sources are available. Um, if you go back too far, there there really wasn't an investigation by the Department of Justice or the FBI. Uh, and so it was basically left to local law enforcement. And, and those files are pretty much gone in, in almost every case. So they're really hard to, to research. I, as a writer, I have to really depend on filing Freedom of Information Act requests and then basically just going into the National Archives and getting my hands on the Department of Justice files. And it's really the only way I can really write about these is if there was a civil rights investigation, because that way I know that there's been FBI reports that have been generated, that witnesses have been spoken to. And so I can really tell the story. Um, the FBI, in my experience, does a really uh, incredible job in actually going out and investigating these things. Um, they, they do about as best as you could possibly imagine, whether or not there's any interest in pursuing these civil rights cases. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover basically looked at these kind of cases, lynchings and civil rights cases, as um, a problem for his organization because many times they put together these airtight cases against you know lynchers and they could not get indictments. And so it was ultimately seen as a black eye to the FBI. And so they didn't really like to go into this. It wasn't so much that they had certain feelings about race, which you can definitely make a case that they were not racially enlightened. Um, but, but in the times that they did go forward and do these investigations, oftentimes these investigations would just die on the vine. And so it's really kind of frustrating. But in my experience, the FBI reports are pretty thorough and they're pretty telling. They don't have everything. And like I mentioned, you know, there's certain people that just will not talk to the FBI. So in, in, in a lot of cases, they're stymied. But in the cases that I've written about, all the information is right there in the FBI reports, but the investigations just never went anywhere. So there was really no accountability. And how hard is it to, to get these FBI files from the Freedom of Information Act? I mean, as, as you know, Gilbert, I was a journalist before I was a lawyer, and I can remember filing FOIA requests and getting back a response about two years later full of redacted papers. Um, so I'm just wondering, as, as a writer with a, a book publishing deadline, how easy or how difficult is it to, to even get the, the FOIA the information from FOIA requests? Well, that's a really great question. I'll give you a specific answer that will show you like my involvement. When I was working on Devil in the Grove, which was about, you know, the year it came out in 2012. So in the years leading up to that, it probably took me about five years. 
I one of the first things I did was, was file the FOIA request because I wanted to get my hands. I knew there was a Groveland file. And and so I, I put forward a request and then I followed up with it. And basically what the, what they tell you at the National Archives is that these files are going to need to be gone through and vetted. And if there's any names or any information in those reports, perhaps there's reference to grand jury testimony, that will all be redacted. And so they, you go into a long queue and you're right. It takes sometimes more than two years. I mean, I was told when I first filed this FOIA about this case, and it was like a box of files that I thought I would be getting. Um, they told me that, you know, I was number like 165 in the long queue and I would call back every month and they would tell me now you're down to like 159 call back the next month, you're down to 147. And it, it occurred to me that it was going to be years before I'd get my hands on this. And then one afternoon, after about a year of calling every month, um, the man at the National Archives said to me, Mr. King, today is your lucky day. And I said, oh, wow, did I crack the top 100? And he said, no, it's better than that. He said, after 60 years, once the investigation starts, after 60 years, all of it becomes public domain. And so I said, well, what, what does that mean for me? And he said, that means you, if you came down here tomorrow, we would have to turn over all these files to you without redacting anything. And so that's exactly what happened. I just happened to luck into this 60-year window that had passed, and now I could get the unredacted files. And so that was what happened to me, and that's how I benefited, because I'm not sure I would have ever gotten my hands on those files. And once they were redacted, I never would have seen the information that I saw in those FBI files. And were you able to get any grand jury transcripts for that book or for your other books? No, I never was. I mean, in Devil in the Grove, there was never a grand jury that was impaneled. But in a book I wrote subsequently, Beneath the Ruthless Sun, um, I knew there were grand jury testimony that I could, you know, I tried to access. Um, I was basically told that, um, they're, you know, the precedent, they're not going to just turn this over. But I was told that because the Florida state legislature had done an investigation and the special master had requested that he be able to look at the grand jury testimony and the transcripts from the grand jury. Um, and uh, a, a federal judge, Brian Simpson, up in um, the Northern District of Florida, um, acceded to that request. And he permitted the special master in this case to get his hands on the grand jury testimony. And so I thought maybe with that precedent, I might be able to get access to them myself. Um, and I tried a couple of ways and I, I even got a law firm involved. And they basically told me, you're going to have to file a suit and it's probably going to take years. And so I, I kind of decided to back off it. But it was very, very frustrating to me because I felt like that grand jury testimony would really have some of the mysteries and some of the information that I really wanted. And I kind of knew it was in there. Um, and so it was really frustrating to know that that was, you know, within, you know, I knew what building it was in. If I could just get my hands on it and see it, then I, and, and I also kind of knew there was no way I was going to get them. How much of a difference do you think it would have made? I mean, one of the issues that came up in the pitch case that we worked on was this idea that there's enough information out there. Mr. Pitch had the FBI files he didn't really need this additional trove of documents. Do you think there's anything to that argument? 
Um, I, you know, I just, you don't know what you don't know until you see it. You know, it, it, it just reminds me that all it takes is one kind of document and, or one, or one kind of reference or one kind of denial or admission. Um, I would have loved to see it. I think that something's always in there. I can tell you that one of the things, once I had gotten my hands on the Florida legislature reports, uh, on this particular case, I noticed that there were certain references in inner office memos that um, just weren't caught by anybody. So they would reference some of the grand jury testimony. Uh, and sometimes I would see things where the grand jury testimony, they were referring to that in the reports and it would be redacted. But the black um, markings across certain names, I could sort of figure out because I knew it could only be like three or four people. And, you know, one of the names was fairly short. And so when I saw that really short name, I said, that's got to be him. And so you can sort of put together the information based on what you know. But um, I, I would disagree. I would love to see, to see you know, those transcripts because, you know, that, that's an opportunity sometimes for a person who might have said something to a police officer or an investigator. And now all of a sudden he's, you know, under oath before a grand jury. Um, the answers might be different. And I, I believe that's what happened in the case I was looking into. Um, I fortunately was able to, I think, read around it and get to the bottom of it. But, um, you know, there's certain things. I don't know everything. I know certain things happened in that grand jury room. And I would I would love to know what that was. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. In, in this decision, one of the judges on the 11th Circuit panel, Judge Graham, who a, was a visiting judge from Ohio, filed a dissent, and part of his dissent talked about the shame and the embarrassment that family members and descendants of witnesses or even Ku Klux Klan members would feel if all of this is dredged up. And I'm wondering what your experience with that is, to, to the extent in your research you've gone to family members of people. Um, and you've tried to interview them about what their father, what their relative did. What, what kind of reaction do you get? Well, it is painful. I mean, there are certain experiences I've had when interviewing family members. And, um, and you know, it, it, sometimes I'm breaking the news to them that, you know, their relative was involved and their relative might have been in the Ku Klux Klan um, and they were named. And, you know, it, it is it is shameful. But I also recognize that most of the people I've talked to, you know, they knew. They knew that there was, you know, some activity involved. Um, and, you know, it's not pleasant. But I think I was reading an interview with Anthony Pitch. We was talking about this very topic. And, uh, you know, he said, say, what if, what if somewhere along the line they find out who Jack the Ripper was in England? Um, and do you not come forward with that information because a relative of Jack the Ripper might be shamed by this. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and so I, my argument falls into that too. I mean, yeah, it, it would definitely be painful for the, for the people involved who would find out maybe, you know, their father or their uncle was involved in the lynching or a ringleader of the lynching. But, um, you know, is that any different than what we have in any criminal case at all? And why, why do, why do the people have to be protected from that? That, that to me is not the purpose of why grand jury testimony is, is secretive. Well, Gilbert, one of the interesting things about this case was the way that the court was struggling, not just with the legal and the textural questions, 
but also with historical and, and public policy questions. And Judge Jordan, uh, who's on the 11th Circuit, asked during the initial oral argument, how do we know what's history? What's historical to one person and one family may not be historical to another. How do we decide what records are of exceptional historical importance? And I'm wondering, as a historian, how you answer that. Yeah, well, I mean, that is an interesting question. Um, I guess my way of thinking on it is sort of the way that the manner in which uh, grand jury testimony is denied to journalists. And in the cases that some grand jury testimony has, has, has been released, it's usually in the case where there's some kind of government corruption or cover-up or something that outweighs the, the, the right of the public to know about these secretive um, grand jury proceedings. And so my thinking is it's not so much about the families um, who were um, really you know, affected by these particular lynching cases. It's really about the American criminal justice system. And if, if, if this testimony can point to ways in which you know, things were covered up or government officials were being corrupt and, and not doing their jobs, which is exactly, I think, what you have the case when you have law enforcement that's so intertwined with uh, the Ku Klux Klan and a lot of these witnesses. That needs to be exposed. And I feel like the credibility of the entire criminal justice system is really hinging on, on, on these kind of events. And so if you have law enforcement perjuring themselves and, and, and they're identified at being present and maybe the ringleaders of these lynchings, which is often the case in, in the Jim Crow South, um, to me, that sort of outweighs the, the need for public secrecy. That needs to be exposed so that there can be some kind of accountability and credibility other than just sweeping it under the rug and moving on to the next case and saying this testimony can never be seen by anybody. Um, so I don't really believe in the, in the argument that, you know, family and shame and, and, and what's historic to one family or the other is, is really should be a guiding principle. I really think it should be the credibility of the U.S. government. Um, that, to me, is, is the thing that really, um, I think, should take precedent. And have you found that uncovering these histories makes a difference sort of in the present day? I mean, with your books, um, does it does it matter to what we're doing now or what we may be doing in the future? I really do think it matters. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So in Devil in the Grove, which came out in 2012, um, you know, slowly after, especially after the Pulitzer Prize, there's, there seemed to be a lot more attention on this case. And I think a lot of people reading this and just saying, how can this happen? How could this have happened in, an, in the not so distant past? I mean, there were people who were still alive who were involved in this case. Um, so it's not like some ancient history. And so what happened was that um, a lot of people began to read the book within the legislature and, and a couple of legislators decided to put forward a claims bill. Um, that sought an apology, a pardon, and ultimately an exoneration for the Groveland boys in this particular case. And um, momentum began to build. And I think it was because that, you know, Florida began to think that, you know, in order to move forward, we have to sort of acknowledge some of these really grave and gross injustices 
of our past. And when you look at the role of law enforcement and, and, and the state attorney's office and the judge and all the way on up to the governor and the U.S. attorney, they were all really complicit in, in keeping this civil rights case under wraps and not letting it be exposed. And so the official version that has lingered for like six decades was the version of, of, of Sheriff Willis McCall and law enforcement's version of this case that a woman had been sexually assaulted by four African-Americans. Um, and on the evening of their retrial, the sheriff decided to shoot them because they were attempting an escape, um, which turned out to not be the case. And that was in all the FBI reports that were sealed and never seen for decades. And so ultimately, when I got my hands on these documents, there were basically confessions and all of this information exposing the perjury, the, the um manufacturing of evidence, the prosecutorial misconduct that was not revealed at the time of the trial. And so I think the state recognized that, you know, how can we move forward and have credibility if there's no accountability, if we can't look back at certain cases and say, we got this wrong. So it does serve a purpose, I think, for the future going forward, if, if we can sort of correct and acknowledge some of these sins of the past. And I think that's one of the reasons that you and I got involved in this case, um, we filed an amicus brief in the 11th Circuit on this case, arguing that district courts do have the inherent authority to release these grand jury records of historical importance, and that the release of the records in this case was proper. Um, I know that we felt that this was an important case for historians and for journalists, and, of course, we're waiting to see how the 11th Circuit rules. But I'm wondering what the impact might be if the courts close the door to this type of access. Um, as you know, the D.C. Circuit has ruled in a different case on the same issue and found that the courts don't have the authority to release these records uh, except in very limited circumstances. And even, as in this case, where the government agrees, at least in theory, the records are important, they're historically significant, and they should be released, but the courts just don't have the power to do it. So if this case um, results in the records remaining sealed, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on journalists, historians, and people who want to examine our past? Well, I think it'd just be a, a really a, a lost opportunity to really correct some of these injustices. You know, when we talk about in America, we, we have this haunted past of like the sin of original slavery. But, you know, after slavery ended, um, and talking about like reconstruction onward, there was a great deal of racial violence and you know, it started the whole mass incarceration system and, and, and the system of Jim Crow led to this system where, you know, African-Americans who were enslaved before were actually an investment that, you know, slave owners had to make. In other words, lives really mattered. But once slavery ended, African-American lives became sort of disposable. And so that was where you saw this massive increase in violence against African-Americans at the time. And so that, that continued. It was a carnival of violence. 
And, and on most of these cases were never solved. And they didn't have to be lynchings. They could just be straight up disappearances or, or resisting arrest cases where, you know, law enforcement kills somebody. And uh, so sometimes I think the lynchings, I think we have documented about 4,700 lynchings in America. That doesn't even begin to show the total number of racial um, violence and murders that were happening at the time. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're trying, it should be about truth and reconciliation. And in order to get to the point of reconciliation, you have to get to the truth. And by not knowing how these cases involve the government, involve law enforcement people, who were the lynchers involved in these cases, if we'll never get to the truth. It'll just be buried sometimes in these grand jury testimony, in this grand jury testimony. And I think that would just be a great shame. I mean, some of these cases are generations old. Um, and if, you know, the, the worst we have to deal with is a community member who can point back to, you know, a great uncle or a grandfather who might have been involved in this. Um, I don't think that's a, a, a severe cost to pay in order to get to the truth of what really happened and who maybe was involved in, in, in making sure that this the justice never saw the light of day in, in these kind of lynchings. So I just think it's a great lost opportunity. I'm not sure that if, if the court decides that, you know, no media person or anyone should ever have the right to see grand jury testimony. Um, I, I think it'll, it'll really silence a lot of attempts to get further, um, you know, attempts at getting grand jury testimony. It might be seen as having been decided already. Um, and I, I just think that could be a, a really stifling, um, a stifling moment um, for, for historians that they know they're never going to get to the bottom of some of these cases. Well, um, Gilbert, one, one thing that was interesting to me listening to the oral argument in this case was the 11th Circuit was very interested in the effect that a new law would have on this case. And the new law is the Civil Rights Cold Case uh, Collection Act. And Senator Doug Jones of Alabama was the chief sponsor behind this act, which President Trump signed. And it's a complicated act, but in short, for grand jury records, it created an advisory board that would be appointed by the president that would have to include at least one professional historian. And this advisory board would review requests for access to public or to government records, including grand jury transcripts of civil rights cold cases. And if the panel recommended the release of the records, that would go to the attorney general and it could also go to various government agencies to consider. And if the attorney general agreed that the record should be released, then they could ask a court to release the records. Um, the 11th Circuit was very interested in that procedure. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about whether sort of a centralized process that involves historians is better or worse for historians like yourself who are trying to get access to these records? Well, that's a great question. And, and I think, you know, any kind of process that 
I think you know you still need to be careful about this stuff. You know, maybe maybe redacted grand jury testimony is is the, the way to go. Maybe historians working with other you know legal experts can say this is material within these grand jury testimony that's really getting at the heart of why you want a secretive grand jury. Um, and so maybe it could just be judged on a you know per case basis where this material isn't necessary towards getting to the bottom of what happened in this case, but it could have the effect of maybe a chilling effect where witnesses um, might not come forward later, knowing that the day might come when this material gets out. And so I would, I really wouldn't have a problem with, with, with some kind of um, board or, or advisors going in and looking at this and, and, and sort of making a decision like what, what, is necessary towards getting to the truth of these cases and what might be just excess material that could only be harmful in nature and wouldn't serve any purpose for historians or anyone writing about this case. And so maybe maybe that's the kind of stuff that could be redacted. But anything, I think, any kind of compromise to getting a, a system in place that gives historians the right to look at grand jury testimony in some of these cold cases, um, I, I think is just a positive step um, in the process, and I would welcome something like that. I, I you know, I, I'm I'm hesitant to just say we should just get a, a dump of all grand jury testimony. There has to be some process involved, and, and if it, if it's a historian working along the lines with with you know an attorney general's office or something, it's better than what we have now. And so I would welcome it. Well, we will see how that plays into the Eleventh Circuit's decision. I mean, a couple of the judges noted that that law only applies to civil rights cold cases. So many um, cases where grand jury records have been released, like the Nixon impeachment grand jury, or the Nixon grand jury, Alger Hiss grand jury, would not, would not benefit from this, this law. Um, so we will see how the law impacts our case and, and what comes of it. Um, it's been great talking with you, Gilbert. Um, as we speak now, it's in November of 2019. The full 11th Circuit, all 12 judges just heard oral arguments in the case. We probably won't get a decision for many months. And even when we get a decision, I think there's a reasonable chance that the case could make its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, the, 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 a very similar case in the D.C. Circuit um, the uh, historian there has filed a petition to have the case heard in the Supreme Court. And we'll see what happens with that. And we'll see what happens with our case. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. It was great working with you on this amicus brief uh, that we think is you know, very important for journalists and for historians and for writers. And we're looking forward to, to seeing what happens with uh, the 11th Circuit decision in it. Well, well, thanks, David. I, mean, I really appreciate the help. And, um, you know, I, th I think you're right. I think you're onto something with this. It's a really important case. I think it's going to have ramifications uh, for people like me for, for many, many years to come. So I'm hopeful and optimistic that something really positive might come from it. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Carlton Fields podcast series with David Karp. To learn more about our appellate and media law practices, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. 
The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.